want to give it one more one more clear out? There we go. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike Eskin, Mootloo on the other side. Hey, bro. Yo, yo. Um, I want to get into, I saw all your tour dates, so I want to get into that in a little bit. I want us to talk about all your tour dates because you, you know, you've been hinting at like the the full list. I think that's the full list that's out there now. That's right? the full list. It's been a different situation than in the past because in the past you would kind of line everything up and everything would go up at the same time. This year, with the pandemic, I think different rooms, different markets are coming back at different times. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of been announcing some things piecemeal, but this is the first time finally everything's up and running. Okay. So I was kind of able to put it all out there at once and. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting to finally kind of announce a proper tour. Just, just uh, you know, it, it's interesting watching what's happening as bands are trying to adjust with the Delta variant. Uh, because I've seen some tours and some festivals cancel, but most people are pushing forward. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like uh, there's going to have to be some new standards, at least in the short run, like proof of vaccination or negative COVID tests, that, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I think people are at the point where they're not... They're not, like I saw that jazz festival cancel the New Orleans yeah. Jazz Festival, which I, I don't think was normally in October anyway. It had already been rescheduled, I think. It's normally like yeah. in the spring. Yeah, I think it, it's probably a tough time for them in October anyway, just because of you know college football and like all the shit going on down there anyway. But um, I, I just think people are at the point where they're like, all right, we're not canceling these things, but we right. do have to fucking figure them out. And that's yes. where the the vaccination stuff and and all that. Like even up here, I'm in Jersey now. You know, New York has that app, the Excelsior app, which is like a proof of vaccination app. Ah, so you just load up that you're there and then you show that or well, Yeah, but know? the problem is is that it only like here's the problem with like, you know, things happening federally versus things happening privately or things happening with states is that the only way the Excelsior app works is if you were vaccinated in New York State, right? right so, right. and I, I wasn't. So, so there's a different app for Jersey. There's no app for PA. You can always like show a, a picture of it, but like, boy, doesn't that seem like a like, inefficient this is, way? Yeah, to, this, this is the challenge I think because like, I know some of my dates went up, and already automatically the venues are going to require proof of vaccination, yep, or negative test. So that's that's already set up. But it's not necessarily the case everywhere, so I asked my agents if we could try to implement it everywhere, just because I'm I'm really excited to do the shows, but I just want to make sure everyone's safe. I yep. think I know, I know a lot of artists feel that way. So, but you're right; it's city to city, state to state. It's like it's different. It's different situations, and I don't know. In some states, it might not even be <clears throat> possible to do that. So, yeah, yeah, it's a it'll be a challenge all the way through, and I think even if it's not perfect. If we're at the point where somebody is so intent on not getting vaccinated that they're going to come up with a fake vaccination card, it's like, I would say that 99 out of 100 people are not doing that. So like the the one yeah. person that's doing that, you're just going to have to like say, well, you know, we, we did what we can. Um, but but otherwise, I, I think, you know, to, to your point, people are are in the point now where it's been going on so long that they need to, restaurants have to figure it out, you know, tours have to figure it out, and this is the way that you figure it out, you know? Yeah, at least for the short run, and maybe yeah. even more in the long run, we're going to yeah. have to sort of deal with some of these things, but I, I guess there's a way to do it. I just wish there was a across-the-board standard, because yeah. trying to figure yeah. this out 
market to market is challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. So, well, on the good side, on the non-fucking COVID side, the so some of your dates are headline dates, and some of them are open up for Amos, right? And then, yep. <clears throat> and then some of them. Is there a third part of that, or is it only the two? No, it's just the two. Okay. Uh, handful of dates with Amos in September. Mm-hmm. Basically, all the dates in September I'll be opening for Amos, and then October, November is my own headlining shows. Cool. Uh, so. You know, Northeast, West Coast, Midwest, down South, uh, you know, Texas, Southeast. So covering a, covering a good amount of ground. <laughs> I saw there is a New York date, right, in October, New York City. Yeah, that's right. Rockwood Music Hall, I think that's the 21st. So. And that is a solo. That's just a solo date. That's yeah. a nice, intimate listening room. So that's just a solo gig. <laughs> nice. Well, maybe yeah, I'll, baby. I'll, have to, I'll have to see you in New York then. Well, congratulations on the, on the tour dates. I saw also... Uh, Amos, Amos put out a new tune, which is awesome. Yes, indeed. Great, yeah, great tune. Pretty, pretty classic Amos. It feels like, like pretty. I don't, I don't mean to say down the middle, but, you know, he's done stuff that's a little more soul, and then he'll do stuff that's a little more, like, twangy and country, but this one, like, pretty much sat right down the, the Amos, the middle of the Amos lane for me. Yeah, this is definitely, I would say, vintage Amos, and I've heard him play the tune a number of times. I've heard him play it solo, mm-hmm. and uh, when I opened for him in Delaware last month, that was definitely one of the highlights in playing that tune. So, like we always talk about, the best tunes hold up acoustically. Yeah. And uh, that song definitely connects just voice guitar, but it's it's cool to hear the production around it. Really kind of atmospheric uh, sort of production that they create. And so the arrangement has a really nice arc and just his quintessential soulful dynamic kind of performance. To your point about the atmospheric, it, it feels very big. The song feels very yeah. big, you know, like it, it feels very produced in a in a really good way not not overbearing but there's a lot of elements to it and it does um it fe- i i always my my description for songs like that is that it, it feels like a soundtrack song not not, right. not in a bad yeah, way it but it, it feels like it should be in a movie or something it's a great tune absolutely yeah it has it has moments where where it kind of pairs down and gets really quiet but there's this like big sonic sweep that it builds up to uh, about midway through and towards the end and I also just think the message of that song is really meaningful at this time. Pandemic, yeah. there's all this uncertainty, people are struggling. It just infuses some some degree of hopefulness, some an uplifting feeling to things when everything is at times feels like it's falling apart. I think we like music has that ability. It can be an antidote to all yep. that negativity. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, worry no more, right? That's what's called worry, worry no more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you even the title, that there's certainly a positive message. Yes, that, indeed. To that, yeah, <laughs> an optimistic message. So absolutely. So, so this is a music appreciation podcast. One group we appreciate is Marion Hill. They lent their their uh, their song. I should let you know to our intro. So that is uh, that's the intro song by Marion Hill, and this is the only place you can hear that song. Exclusive, exclusive, man. You this is so. This is what you this morning are. Why every time I ever had an artist play a morning show at <laughs> at a radio station, they were like grumpy about it. Is because yeah. it's tough, right? It's tough to do it. I'm morning. usually good. I don't know. Today I'm. Uh... Today I'm like slow to open up. My voice is slow to open up somehow. But you're right. Playing the morning 
playing the morning uh, promo stuff can be really rough because, you know, your voice doesn't generally open up quite as much until maybe the afternoon. But I'm usually good. I usually get up and, you know, I usually have my hot water. Uh, you know, you haven't had that I yet? I was a little slow to the s- slow rolling today. Yeah, so. Okay. Yeah, it's a, little, it's a little bit of a phlegmy episode. <laughs> so this is it. Well, people love phlegm. That's the good thing. Is that when they're listening, they love phlegm. Yeah, absolutely. This is a music appreciation podcast where we talk about two albums generally every podcast. To suggest an album, do it in the Apple Podcast reviews. Just give us five stars as a rating. Then in the review, leave your album that you'd like and then grip it, rip it. And move on. And if you if you don't want to do it in Apple, you don't have to. If you don't use Apple, you could just go to carlandryrecordclub.com. All right. Two albums today. Mootloo's choice is J.J. Kale's Naturally from 1972. And the listener choice is Alex Cameron's Forced Witness from 2017, suggested by Apple Podcast user Tom. Uh, uh, Tom says this in his review, fan music appreciation, breaking down new music is fun, interesting banner between the hosts, discovering new music through this podcast. Almost sounds like it was, that was a review generated by artificial intelligence or something. <laughs> uh, please review Alex Cameron's Force Witness. Thanks. So which one do you want to do first, Force Witness or, or your record? It's up to you, man. No, I always pick. So I'm leaving it up to you. Uh, do you want to start with Alex Cameron? Sure. Let's do it. So it's So the listener record is Alex Cameron's Force Witness. I will say that in the this was a rare event. I've mentioned it before. This is a rare event, and we didn't really talk about it. But it's a rare event when I text you about the listener album during the week, and all I said was, "Can't wait to talk to you about this." Because, I, I for me, it was literally forty five seconds into the album. I was like, "What is this?" And then the more I listened to it, the more like interested I was in the whole thing. So I just I felt like I needed to tell you. Yeah, that we normally try not to do the pod before the pod, right? But uh, but I, I'm with you on that. This this album was was definitely a revelation. I, I'd heard of him, okay, but hadn't really hadn't really checked out any of his records. So this I, was, this was something special. So I had not heard of him. So he is Australian. I didn't know that when I picked it. But we have <laughs> we have reviewed a lot of Australian artists on the Carl, and I'm a I'm a, a long. I've, I've mentioned before that a lot of the bands that I end up loving are Australian. I think there's a just. You know, there's only 20 million people in Australia, and the amount of amazing artists that come from there—I think it's 20 million. I think I looked that up sometime recently—is is pretty amazing. So, the first words of his Wikipedia entry are: "Born and raised in Sydney, he is best known for his solo career, a high-concept act in which Cameron initially adopted the persona of a failed entertainer." And like that—that <laughs> that was, you know, listening to the album and then going back and hearing about like this whole persona thing. I think made the album make a little more sense to me because the the lyrics are are just a, like so snarkily funny, you know, that I, I think the context of all of it made a little more sense to me after I went and read that because somebody who would do that would write lyrics like this, you know, that lyrics that are not always joking and definitely not not a comedy record or anything, but definitely like self 
incredibly self-aware. And that, that seemed to make sense to me. So this is his second album. His first album came out in 2013. He put it out himself. It was called Jumping the Shark. It was this, this, um, this persona of the failed musician, and it was different sonically than this one was. The first album certainly had more sort of dance and electric, electronic sound than, than this did, than this album, which is what we'll get to in a second. So he slowly, he slowly uh, builds this cult following, and he says about his, his whole thing that he's doing. I write about the outlier, the table for one guy, the guy whose life is a constellation of, of microscopic tragedies. Failure has been underexplored in music. My characters come from a place where ambition, crippling self-doubt, and tragedy intersect. Uh, and it also, wow. the, it, like all of this reminded me of the movie, I, I think we may have mentioned this before, reminded me of the movie The Wrestler on some level. That That's a great film. You know, work. And, yeah. and the way that he describes this character and the, the way that he describes tragedy and, and self-doubt and ambition and all of those things remind me of that in, in some way. So this album comes out in 2017, which is after he had become friends with Brandon Flowers from The Killers. And he had co-written five songs on The Killers record, Wonderful, Wonderful, which came out in about the same time. And then when he toured on this album, he opened up for the Killers on their U.S. tour. So he's had plenty of exposure out here. And he is, I was talking to Jason briefly, Jason Lipschitz about him, brief, briefly uh, over text. And apparently he is much bigger overseas, much bigger in England than he is here. They're, it's amazing that the artists that are like that, because you would think that a band that would be big in like the UK would be big here too, but there are bands like Robbie Williams is like massive oh, yeah. over there, He's right? He's like a stadium act there. My pain walks down a one-way street. I look above and I know I love Yep, and I, you know, a, a band that made me think that I thought of when I was listening to this record was Scissor Sisters, who are also enormous over there and like have had moments over here, but but not like not big like they are over here. So, but you listen to Robbie Williams, uh, the songs are awesome. I think the difference, and see if you agree with this, is that the the like the straight ahead pop music that got big over here over you know the the twenty or so years that Robbie Williams was big over there was not self aware or or. Like, didn't have much attitude, I don't think. And Robbie Williams is, like, different. Almost had a rock star sort of vibe and tone and way he handled himself. Similar to the, the Gallagher brothers, you know? But, but I, I never saw pop stars have that over here. And I, I wonder if, like, the marketability of who they are affected their popularity in the U.S. Yeah, well, I was... This is a... So we talked about this band at one point in time, but Jamiroquai yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is another group that's massive in Europe and UK and all across Europe. But here they had one moment, like you said, you know, Scissor Sisters kind of had a moment here. Mm -hmm. Something just translate differently, I think, over there with the audience because 
it's one thing to objectively look at the music and the songs and the production and everything, but then, the, like you said, there's always this other, what's the persona? Right. What's the image? What's the identity? And I think certain artists maybe connect more with that UK audience or the audience in Europe. I mean, and then you hear groups that really hit it in Japan, but, mm -hmm. you know, don't necessarily do well. I mean, it just depends. Every different, different areas, I think, adopt different artists for X number of reasons. So this album is impeccably written. And I'm, I'm going to try to, like, describe the way that it sounds to me. So every song sounded to me like it came from a really important time in the movie The Breakfast Club. Like, <laughs> I could imagine every one of these songs starting in that movie or Pretty in Pink or, you know, any one of the Molly Ringwald movies. The, the lyrics are funny sometimes and sarcastic sometimes, but the songs themselves are, like, undeniably great. And you know how the darkness... The darkness is sort of a real band, but a, a sort of a lampoon of, of glam. And this is the same thing, but not of glam, but if the template was like Aha or Simply Red or, or one of those, where it is like this evolved version of that music, even Depeche Mode in some way, you know, a, another band we talked about. And the opening song, this, this song, Candy May. is just a perfect opening song uh, for, for the record because it has all of it. It's got a great hook. It's got funny lyrics and it's, it's immediate. So as you know, I hate reading lyrics because they never come across the street, but this is so funny to me. So when you see me and Candy Mae and we're walking down the street at a mean pace and she is crying out, you fucking lonely man, you worthless <laughs> piece of shit, you all wouldn't understand. Because Candy Mae, I know she loves me in her own true way. You call it as you see it. You think you know the score, but you just never had a girl like Candy Mae before. And uh, <laughs> it's a great tune. Two more songs that I love. Running Out of Luck. with Brandon Flowers. I would say it sounds like a killer song, but it also sounds like an Alex Cameron song, right? And because they, they like the, these bands, and I'm, I'm Brandon Flowers is on it, but these, these artists cross. Like there is a, like a midsection of these artists. It's got an incredible hook. And again, the lyrics, I'm a man on a mission, you're a stripper out of luck. <laughs> and we're good in the back seat, but we're better up front. And there's blood on my knuckles because there's money in the trunk. Keep running out of luck. Keep running out of luck. And then the last one I loved was Politics of Love. The dream is gone and I can hardly stay afloat. You could ride in on a raven, baby. You could ride in on a dove. It makes no difference when you come round here. There ain't no politics in love. 
which really had the 80s soundtrack feel to me. Like the walking through the streets, contemplating, uh, you know, your being. It's just a just a, another great fucking song. I think the entire record, which is 10 songs and 41 minutes, I think 10 songs, flies by and every song is great. It's, this was like, you said a revelation, I, I agree. Yeah, great listens start to finish and um, we somehow always, not always, but often key in on the same songs, but I think that makes sense because there are certain tracks that really stand out. Running Out of Luck, I think, was my favorite one. And I guess I didn't even think of that. I know Brandon Flowers, I guess it, it is kind of reminiscent of a killer song. It's, it mm-hmm. sort of puts you in that place. But one thing I, I love about his songwriting is his lyrics. And he has an ability, like the best writers, to sort of put you in a scene and create that visual for you. But it's his sense of humor. It's his turn of phrase. Like you, those lines, I'm a man on a mission, you're a shepherd of luck, or... We're good in the backseat, but we're better up front. He has an ability with a few lines to say so much. Like yeah. I, from listening to that, I get the picture of, you know, two people who met under circumstances that wouldn't ordinarily lead lead to a meaningful relationship. Yeah, but they're trying to figure it out. Yeah, I mean that that it conveys so much to me. Or you, whether or not that's exactly what he's communicating, you get a lot of that. So I just think uh, that one and. You know, it's interesting. I wouldn't say he's a a great singer in the conventional sense. No, not at all. He's not, but but he is a great singer in the way he communicates. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a very particular style of phrasing and delivery, and he's one of those singers where you get every line. And I think that it's a weird thing. But the more we've listened to all these different records, like that means something. That that sometimes like. Uh, the singer from Brand New. I'm forgetting his name now. but uh, uh, Jesse Lacey. It, it, it also reminds me, by the way, of Brandon Flowers and I think uh, Jacob Dylan as well. Yes. In, in that yes. Not, not class, sometimes talky almost in their, in their verse singing, but, but definitely communicates what they're trying to communicate, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think in pop music... Yes, first and foremost, because I'm a singer, I love the the vocals who have this incredible instrument. That's mm-hmm. I think everyone can connect to that. But there is this other space in pop music where it's not always about that. It's about it's about what are the songs, and then how does this person communicate those songs to you? And like you said, like with Jacob Dylan, he's another good example. I would actually say Jacob Dylan's probably a better singer than his father. I don't know if that's blasphemous for, to say. Well, I mean, but <laughs> no one no one thought Bob Dylan like in at least in terms of you know, voice is a right, great right. singer, you know, but but is a good example of a, a way to be a great singer without being a great singer. If, if a great, you know, frontman or whatever the fuck you're going to call it without being a great singer. Yeah, and then occasionally he would surprise you. Like, I don't know if you ever listened to the record Nashville Skyline. Mm-mm. Maybe we'll have to pick that, where he was singing this, like, smooth kind of country style, which, anyway, but, yeah, I think Jacob Dillon, uh, uh, Jesse Lacey. Now, Jesse Lacey is one of those vocalists where I couldn't always catch everything he was saying. You really got to, like, right, dig yep. in. But it still communicates something. But what I, what I love about Alex Cameron is you get the you get every line from him and he really like sets a scene for you in every song. And then one other thing I was curious to see what your thoughts on this, cause this is something I've deliberated on a lot. The solo sax right. is a big part of this record. Right. So that's his, like yeah. his, his partner is that solo sax player like that he partners with everybody on. I should have, I should have mentioned that, but like, that's an important part of the, 
like the creation process for him is this. Really? Set. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like solo sax is kind of like a lost art form in a way because, you know, when I think of sax, I guess the, the, the use of the sax that I'm most partial to is in the context of a horn section where you think of R&B, soul music, but can any style where it's more like a rhythmic kind of thing, you know, with mm-hmm. a trumpet or a trombone. But when I think of 80s music, man, it's all about the solo sax. And it's almost like a lost art form. You don't really hear it very much. You know, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. That, that, you know what? There's this, there's this song from the. You remember the, the movie The Lost Boys, or is that another one that you just you somehow know what? fucking you know, missed? You here? know what? You brought this up early on. In you the don't pod. know it. I don't know it. I, I can't. <laughs> I know, I know, I don't know where. Yeah, I must have been like I don't know. So living under a rock. What's amazing is we. So we're just about the same age, and there are some things that we like with the sitcoms mm, oh, that yeah. that we existed in the same world, or some even musically that we existed in the same world. But then there's moments where I feel like I lived in a different on a different planet. Yeah. That, so The Lost Boys was a movie about vampires that came out I think in 1989 with Kiefer Sutherland, both Corys, um, Jason Patrick I think is in it. Anyway, but a great soundtrack and there's a song on there called I Still Believe which is very saxophone upfront saxophone you know like uh there's a there's a there's a lot of that in there but yeah it does it does remind me of the 80s a lot well it's interesting because uh i i feel like when i think of 80s music and it could have been a rock band it could have been something that's more straight ahead pop soul like it was all it was so prominently featured and i'm curious at what point in the arc of pop music did it go away right right Uh, I've had this deliberation with people before and, you know, I I think it can be really cool. Like there's a fine line where it can become really cheesy. Oh, absolutely. Or, or it could be both, you know, like the thing. Great and cheesy. Right. And, and in the eighties it might've been great. And then we look back on it now and it's hard for it to not sound cheesy, you know, with, with the context. So, um, well, you know, who employs that, that sound is your favorite, your favorite guy. Somehow he always comes up every podcast. The uh, guy from Jersey, you know. Uh, oh, oh, Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping. We, I was wondering if we could get through that so without him coming. Your favorite? I, I couldn't tell when you were saying your favorite guy. I was like, uh, is he being sarcastic? Or yes, is he I was not 100%. being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, was, but he—that's a big part of his sound—is the uh, is the solo sex. It's a weird thing on, on this record. I don't think it's cheesy at all. I think it's. I agree. It, it's you know what the uh, it's interesting that you said I that was really made sense to me. You said the sax player is part of kind of his writing process. Or yes. His, yeah. 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 It's hold on. I'm, I I didn't write down his name. I'm gonna look it up now. But he's like his his other guy. Hold on. Uh, his name, the sax player's name is. Hold on. <laughs> 
Um, why can't I, I find it? Uh, business partner. Okay, Malloy. Malloy. What's Malloy's first name? Um, Donnie. Donnie Malloy. Donnie Malloy. Um, Ronnie. Ronnie Malloy. Uh, Roy Malloy. Roy Malloy. I was close. I was Cameron close. is often joined by saxophonist and, quote, a business partner, Roy Malloy. <laughs> Why? Why is the business partner in quotes? I have no idea, but it just it lead it all adds into this guy. And Roy Malloy does not <laughs> does not have a, a a Wikipedia page. So I you know I'd have to do more investigation on Roy Malloy. Maybe next time we'll do it's a, a great a Roy name, Malloy Roy, Malloy. Roy Malloy. It's an incredible name. Here's a question: When you because you even kind of did the air quotes there. Yep. When you quote something like that, doesn't that immediately sort of diminish it in a yeah, way? Uh, well, absolutely. It, it like, sort of it, takes the piss right out of it. Yes. Uh, yeah. but, well, is it is he <laughs> his business? Is he his business partner? Or no. Like like that's what you know what I mean. So well, what, what do we glean from that? Like. Like they he tells people that they're business part, but that's not really a thing. They maybe he doesn't exist. Together. Oh, maybe May- he's a made up guy. Yeah. Wow. Wait, do you think he is Roy Malloy? I have no idea. Maybe. I, wow. Maybe he is Roy Malloy. That would make it even more interesting. Yeah. Hold but, on. But it's <laughs> now, now I gotta look. Roy Malloy. Okay, so he has an Instagram page. Okay. And it says, <laughs> "This is so funny." Uh, he's listed as a religious organization on. On the what? page, and he says, "Alex Cameron, saxophonist and business partner, Sydney's own mighty marvelous crane." And I wonder if Roy Malloy is Alex Cameron. Alex Cameron. Oh God, this is so fucking weird. I should have done a deeper dive into all of it. Sort of like Garth Brooks, Chris Gaines kind of situation, but that they were like two different artists. Yeah, but even Alex Cameron's existence seems like. Chris Gaines to a certain extent, like you know what I mean, because that he's writing from a a different yeah, and his merch page just goes right to Alex Cameron. I don't know, man. We got to do more on this. Do a deep dive in this, but but talking about the sex, and you were saying whether or not it's him or it is actually another person. The sex in a lot of the songs, especially towards the end, is always like feels like an extension of the vocal melody. Yes, like it feels like. A, it feels like it was written in as part of the part of the tune. It doesn't feel like it was something that was just tacked on later, uh, which I think is what makes it really cool. It, it, it's it's kind of a payoff at the end of a lot of songs. You know, you, you, mm-hmm. it's usually about two thirds of the way through, or on an outro or something. But you know what it made me think of uh, with Faye Webster. You know, she really just commits to using the pedal steel, yes, and it's a big part of her sound. It really, def- you know, to a large degree, defines her sound in a way. And I think the sax kind of has a similar thing here. It's interesting when you key in on one instrument and it kind of becomes the counterpoint to the vocalist in a way. And I think it's very, it's really effective on this one. But yeah, this this record is really high up there on the list of listener picks, I think, that we've that we've come across. Yeah, it's 10 Mootloo for me. I'm going to be a, a fan of his now. And now I got to find out more about Roy Malloy. Yeah. Yeah, Roy. He sounds I'm, like, yeah, is he from Kensington? I'm looking at... So there's a T-shirt on the merch page that says Cameron Malloy and Associates, and Wait, it has Cam- a, Cameron Malloy, Cameron comma Malloy and Associates, and there's an address in North Carolina on the T-shirt. 
Who are the other associates? I have no there? idea. I have no idea. It looks like a law firm t-shirt. It's so strange. I'm such a huge fan of this guy, even more now than when we started talking about him. So 10 yeah. Mootloos for me. Absolutely. For Roy Malloy. Absolutely. And Alex Kelly. Yeah. All right, your turn. Yes. So J.J. Kale, mm-hmm. naturally. No. This were you were you familiar with JJ Kale before? No, you said you had So hadn't. not by not by name, but obviously I knew some of these songs. Like I, I was like I looked at the album and I was like, well, I don't know this. And then there was there's I think three songs on the record that I already knew. So Yeah, this cause he's he's had his songs covered by a lot of different artists, yeah. but one of those guys who has had his songs covered and I think has been quite influential, but he himself as an artist, his career as on his own as a touring act was kind of under the radar, but he did have mm-hmm. a great audience. But just to give a little background, born in 1938 in Oklahoma City, but grew up in Tulsa. And he started playing rock and roll as a teenager in the 50s. So he here's a guy who was playing rock and roll music out there, playing the clubs and his thing at, at the very beginning, in the earliest days of rock and roll. In 1959, he moved to Nashville and he joined the Grand Ole Opry's touring company for a few years. So he was already starting to become someone who was in demand uh, for different sessions or, or mm-hmm. gigs, maybe more as a sideman. But eventually he moved back to Oklahoma. Now, it's interesting to note, in those early days in Oklahoma, one of his main collaborators and bandmates was Leon Russell. And in 1964, J.J. Kale, Leon Russell, another musician friend of theirs, Carl Rattle, moved to L.A. Now, Leon Russell's career from there on is legendary songwriter, producer, session player, label owner, artist in his own right. J.J. Mm-hmm. Kale, on the other hand, his time in L.A. was kind of short-lived. He joined Delaney and Bonnie for a brief time. He actually recorded an early version of After Midnight at that time, when that first stint in L.A. And he also formed his band Leather Coated Minds, which released a psychedelic record uh, called A Trip Down Sunset Strip in 1966, but didn't really go anywhere. So he moved back to Tulsa in 1967, right as the flower power was blooming. He, he went back to Tulsa. But really started to focus on his solo career, playing clubs, recording demos. Now, right around that time, Leon Russell and Denny Cordell founded Shelter Records. Now, we talked about Shelter Records because that was the label that first signed Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Ah, okay. And released their first couple records. This was a little earlier in the timeline. This is right around the time they formed. But they signed J.J. Kale in 1969. As fate had it, Eric Clapton covers After Midnight 1970. Really becomes his first big solo hit. And that in turn helped give J.J. Kale some visibility within the industry and helped bring in some royalties. So it was a natural follow-up to, in 1971, to come with this record, Naturally, which was his debut record. Now, over the next four decades, he released another dozen albums or so. He was one of those guys who often took his time between releases. You know, he didn't ever seem to be an artist who adhered so much to the commercial game. You know, he, he had an audience. He had a very dedicated live following. He made records, he partnered with different labels, but he kind of followed his own music, went at his own pace, and didn't really have many songs that charted, but his songs themselves 
were covered by so many different artists, including Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Allman Brothers, Band of Horses. So I think he was someone who had a great career as a songwriter and this other career as an artist, but maybe was somewhat unheralded as an artist. But did, he, also, did he, just as a, a quick thing, was he writing the songs for other people or would he just record them and then somebody else would cover it and it would end up being a big deal? Well, I think it was maybe a combination too because okay. apparently even after he passed, like he would record much more than he actually released. Uh, he was one of those guys. Okay. And I think he just did a lot of home recording. I mean, you even hear that kind of lo-fi quality on these yeah. Yeah. records. But I think more often than not, is like he would just write these songs and make a record. And and I think certain artists would who were fans of his in the industry would just hear these tunes and cover them. Because I think it. he was someone who was really highly respected in the world of you know rock music and pop music overall. It's interesting too, it, it, I think, it's beyond just his songs, though. I think his actual sound has proven to be quite influential. Now, when mm-hmm. you listen to After Midnight or you listen to Cocaine, which is maybe Eric Clapton's biggest hit, that he also wrote that one. It wasn't just that Eric Clapton covered the songs he kind of adopted the sound of those records you know when you when you hear those 70 70s records of eric clapton and you go back and listen to jj kill like oh wait a minute it's a little bit more of a polished version but he sort of just co-opted his whole sound that sort of laid back bluesy kind of thing that jj kill did so in a way he kind of put the, the jj kill's sound into the mainstream it was more than just covering his tunes Hmm. Yeah. That. And I. I. I don't want to blow. Uh, I, I'll let you. Or not let you. But you keep doing this. But how it was recorded, and the sound was actually what stuck out to me. Specifically, the the lo-fi, um, way that it was recorded. But I. I thought that was a positive. But yeah, that, that's it's all just, interesting. It's a certain charm, and it's not just Clapton. When you listen to Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler, mm-hmm. and his sound, his approach. It, I think is definitely influenced by J.J. Kale, no question. When you, when you, when you, when you A.B. their sound. Uh, I would say latter-day Bob Dylan, when you listen to some of Bob Dylan's records and his live show. Mm-hmm. And then if you especially go back and listen to some of J.J. Kale's live records, there's definitely a thread there with just the sound and style that J.J. Kale had. But um, I would also say, talking about the live thing, you know, he was... Um, Alongside the studio records, I think he he had this cult following live, and I think anytime he did a tour, he did well. There's an album from 2001 called, simply titled Live, which is worth checking out. If you're into JJK, I'd say start with this record, and then maybe skip ahead to Live, and then check out some of the other ones. But just to give a few highlights of this album, this debut record, Call Me The Breeze, first track... To me, I'm not sure I've ever heard a first track on a debut album that that so perfectly encapsulates the overall sound, style, spirit of an album. It's just the whole blueprint is right there. You know? I would agree. I, I would put the the song that I always mention as the uh, template for what you're saying is "Welcome to the Jungle." 
like Welcome to the Jungle on the beginning of Appetite for Destruction is right. like, oh, this is what this is. Like, this is what I'm in for, right, Aaron? And I, I agree with this song, does the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Like with Guns N' Roses, it was like, oh, hit, boom. Yep. You got it. You don't have to think any further. Like, this is what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of love it. Now, some artists, that's not the case. I, I, some records I find, it's not till later in the album that you find that really defining song. But with this yeah. record, it's that. It's interesting, too. With this production, we are talking about this lo-fi production approach. He was an early adopter of the drum machine, and he used the ace tone rhythm ace, and that's all over this record. And you, It's interesting how at moments you really hear it pretty hot in the mix. You can just hear the... <laughs> Hear that drum drum machine going. Mm-hmm. Another tune that I really like is uh, "Don't Go Strangers." If I'm standing in a crowd, call my name, call it loud. Don't go to strangers. Call me. That that song has, I think, really showcases J.J. Kale's lead playing style. Very straight ahead, melodic style of playing. It's often an extension of whatever the vocal melody is. But I, I love guitar players. Like, and I love guitar players who can shred and play a million notes, and it's just this incredible virtuoso approach. But more often than not, I'm, I'm partial to a, a lead player like him who, with three or four notes, mm-hmm. just just connects with you. It's just soulful. You know, you, you listen to the tune, you, you remember the guitar lines, and I... I think he's a good example of someone who didn't shred really, but his guitar lines, his leads were always just so effective because they just they they come in the sweet spot of the song, kind of an extension of the melody, and with just three or four notes, which is soulful that soulful bluesy thing. I thought in River Runs Deep is the guitar. I I think his playing is great in there, and he does this cool thing where the guitar is basically answering his vocal melody after he sings it. It's not exactly the same. It does feel like an answer to what he's saying, almost like he's singing with someone else, like it's a duet with his guitar. Right, right, exactly. And I think that's what what makes his style so effective and impactful Mm -hmm. is that it's always an extension of the song. It's not... You know, sometimes you hear tunes and it's kind of like, uh, it's almost like it's the tune is one thing and then the guitar solo is something else mm-hmm. way over here. But, you know, it's kind of the B.B. King style of playing. B.B. King, when you watch B.B. King, a lot, he would sing and then he would play. He would rarely play together because in his mind, whatever lead he was playing was just an extension of whatever he was singing. Well, and he did treat his guitar like a second vocalist right. you know like right. that that's exactly how the the music was was arranged was that way you know like you could you could almost hear hear the guitar saying words when he would play that way and i thought i, I think that happens in this song a lot specifically in in that one particular song absolutely another tune which i think showcases his songwriting is clyde that's one of my favorite mm-hmm. tunes on here Mary loves company his old dog sings harmony Tambourine tied to his tail You can hear him all, you can hear him wait Great song. Basically a character study of these two characters, Clyde and Jody May, and I know you're a dog guy. There's a great moment in this song where Clyde, the character Clyde, is playing, and the dog kind of jumps in and starts kind of singing along, and, 
you know, kind of, and I guess somehow the dog has a tambourine under his foot and is hitting <laughs> the tambourine. It's just a great visual. Like, who would think to write, like, give you that image? But you yeah. can see it. You can see the guy playing, the dog's kind of howling along with him, and also hitting the tambourine. The dog's giving him some rhythm, you know? So that's kind of a funny, cool, <laughs> yeah, sort of slice of life kind of song. And then, of course, towards the end, you get After Midnight, which at this point had already been a hit for Eric Clapton. After Midnight. We're gonna turn up and shine We're gonna call talk and suspicion Give an exhibition Find out what it is But again, when I hear this and you hear Clapton's version, it's like, oh wow, he really just took the whole Yeah Not just song, but the whole sonic blueprint from it So I... I love how concise this album is. It's like 12 songs, 32 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not, there's no wasted space in there. He really, a lot of songs are two and a half, three minutes, but it's effective. He he packs a lot into that. And I just actually think he's someone who is unheralded in some ways. I think people know his tunes because they've heard other artists cover him, but beyond a certain niche, I don't think a lot of people, like, would the casual fan just know who J.J. Kale is? I don't think so. No, I mean, I didn't. I didn't. And then like hearing the story of like, oh, that's why I know that song. And that's why I know that song. And that's why I know that song. And that's this guy is is amazing. And I didn't expect to like it because I started listening and it's got like this bluesy sort of Southern feel to it, which is not not (laughs) usually what I, what I'm drawn to, but it, hearing, hearing that blueprint is amazing. And you mentioned that the way that it was produced and and how it was like lo-fi, there's something that like, and I, we've probably talked about this, but it happened in the late 80s is that everyone started making their records louder. And it was, it, I think it was a strategy because of radio to make your song pop more. And you look at, if you just look like you get a waveform from Smells Like Teen Spirit versus a Zeppelin record or even like probably 1984 by Van Halen, or maybe even pre-1984, you, you could just see the difference in in how loud it is and how, and when it gets to that loudness, you start to lose the the nuance in between the notes because everything, it just starts look, looking, it, this yeah. would only make sense to somebody who kn- knows what a waveform looks like, but yeah. a- everything starts looking maxed out. And this album is not, and I think it benefits from it. It's, a, it's recorded quiet, and not quiet, but like, but, and for some albums, I think that really benefits and it benefits for this one, I think. You yeah, know? it sounds like a home recording almost, mm-hmm. doesn't it? At, yeah. at points. Yeah. I mean, even the way he kind of just lets the drum machine kind of be there. Yeah. It, it almost has a borderline demo like quality, but I, that's what I think the charm of it is, is that he doesn't try to overproduce it. That's an interesting point about records getting louder, because mm-hmm. I know. It's gotten more and more difficult for mastering engineers. Yeah, I'm sure. Over the years to try to figure out how to not, you know, how to keep some sort of dimension in the in the in the recordings, you know, because another example is a Har- uh, Harvest by Neil Young. If you put yeah. that record on, it's really quiet. Well, like, you know, you have to crank it up a little bit to get it. And the other thing that happens now is at least they were waves that were going onto CDs or or tapes or vinyl. Now that music is is being compressed, right? Right. So you're you're compressing it anyway by taking it to the limit of the loudness that you can do it. You're you're already like sort of 
compressing it, and now you're compressing it again by making it a lower <laughs> by like making it a lower quality file. You know, so I think you lose even more with things like that. The, you lose uh, low end with you know mm-hmm. you really don't get the low end just gets squashed. Yeah, uh, with that with what you're saying, it's double compressed basically. Yeah. Uh, the two songs that stuck out to me in addition, Nowhere to Run is a great mm-hmm. like, driving song. And I don't know if you can have a pre-chorus, only a pre-chorus, but it doesn't seem like there's actually a chorus, only a pre-chorus. <laughs> Which I, I don't think you could have, I think that just makes it the chorus, but I, I thought it was a cool, like cool song structure. And, you know, of all the, the genres we're talking about, of all the influence, there's a song Magnolia. which almost seems like a precursor to Yacht Rock to me in a way, that there's like, like I, I could hear that kind of music coming from from that song, which I didn't expect to hear on the album. Yeah, that one, it kind of exists in a different place, I think, mm-hmm. than some of the others. And it's interesting that you said that. I never thought of that, but you're right. There's something sonically that, that does feel like it's sort of the early, early version. Maybe yeah. a... Like maybe a few years removed from when the sort of soft rock yacht rock thing kind of exploded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great album. I, 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 I didn't even know he existed, and he's he is he is responsible for some of the the, the biggest songs of all time. Really, yeah. and I didn't even know he existed. That's amazing. Right on. I'm glad you dug it. Yeah, yeah. Ten moot loose for me. Uh, nice. And I, it was it. It had its like. Um, it had its work cut out for it. <laughs> with I was like, oh boy, one of these. But it's a great record. Great record. Yeah, and I would say it's a record to listen to all the way through. It's only half an hour. I think if you kind of same experience you had, if you give up on it early, you're not gonna get the full tilt of it. It's it's an album you really have to hear top to bottom, and then you're like, oh okay, this is there's something going on here. Um, yeah, great. It's absolutely great. So ten minutes. If you'd like to, we'll be back next week. If you'd like to suggest your album for your one of your favorite albums for Carl Landry Record Club. Do it in the Apple Podcast Reviews or Carl Landry Record Club. And go to, is the, you can go to Mootloo's Instagram for the link or Twitter or just mootloosounds.com. Yeah, mootloosounds.com. All the dates are there. Uh, it's 23 dates in all. Uh, six dates with Amos September 17 throughout uh, October, November. Yeah, if you go to my site, you can click right to all the show show links right there. Okay, cool. Uh, well, good luck. I'm excited to see you back on tour, full tour. Full Exciting, tour man. We've been talking about this for the whole life of the pod. It feels it's like coming. It's, it's, it's almost September. We're like two weeks away from September. It's amazing. September, it's so. amazing. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. We're done. Stay free, my goose. Oh, we got that in the morning, too. I love it. <laughs>